Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Make your way there if you would in your Bible. A little letter to Timothy. This is the final letter that Paul wrote. He's writing from prison in Rome. And uh, we have just begun our study. If you're new with us or visiting with us this evening, we're glad to have you. Uh, This is a relatively new study, though we've been in the pastoral epistles from the very beginning. We made our way through 1 Timothy and now we're in the second. And uh, we're only in 2 Timothy chapter 1, so you have not You have not missed much. This evening we will continue on in the paragraph that we started last week in verse 8, beginning of verse 8, and I believe your bulletin says we're going to go through verse 14, but surprise, this this evening we're actually going to go through verse 18. So whatever we lost this morning by only studying one verse, we're going to make up for it tonight by adding four more to what is already here, okay? And so we'll plan to get you out of here around 9.30, and uh, you'll be able to get the kids to bed. Everything will work out fine. No, I'm just teasing. We're going to race through these verses, and these are very helpful, actually, and and not difficult for us to understand, so we'll move fast, but I trust not too fast. Let me read for us, just to set the table a little bit for the context, beginning in verse 8, and I'm going to read all the way through the end of chapter 1. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, Therefore, Paul says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me, or my deposit. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are uh, Phygelus or Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Verses 1 through 7 of this first section, this first chapter of the letter of 2 Timothy, is introductory material. We spent the first week just getting the guts of this letter down, examining those first two verses, and then came back to verses 3 through 7 to lay out the final portion of the introduction introduction of this letter. We concluded that introduction with verses 6 and 7, which are extremely familiar to us, where Paul reminds Timothy to fan into flame the gift that God has given him, Because God has not given him a spirit of fear, but of boldness, of power, of love, and of a sound mind. At that point, Paul turns the corner, and when we begin in verse 8 with the therefore, he has now entered into the main body of this letter. He is addressing some specific concerns, and in particular in verse 8, he begins the body of the letter with a call for Timothy to respond to two imperatives, two commands. One, don't be ashamed. And two, share. Share in the suffering. 
Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, that is the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me, his servant, who is suffering in a dungeon in Rome because of Nero's persecution. And not just the negative, but in the positive sense, share in this. Share in it. And so last week we looked at the shameless sharing and suffering for the gospel and in the power of God. That brought us into these verses, which are so profound, talking about the power of God revealed in His grace. Beginning in verse 9, it describes for us the power of God. God saved us and called us. We have a sovereign grace that is granted to us in the power of God. We have an ancient grace, also in verse 9, before the ages began. We have a present reality, a present grace in the manifestation of Christ. There is a saving grace that is rescuing us. In verse 10, Christ abolished death. The power of God abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the good news, through the gospel. And not only do we have a sovereign grace and an ancient grace and a present grace and a saving grace, but an exemplified grace in the life of Paul that all point back to the power of God that was to drive and to motivate and to be the means by which Timothy was to take courage and stand for the truth. And we've struggled with the context of this and bringing this to our time period because we do not grasp the very real potential of Timothy suffering in a way for the gospel that we could never comprehend. Paul was released from prison in Rome. Nero then burned Rome to the ground, feeling the heat if you will, of that uh, ridiculous and mindless act, he focuses the blame on the Christian community to shuffle off any attention to himself and his insanity. And Paul is rearrested as the leader of the church at Rome, the leader of the church across the known world, and is put into prison for the final time. And Paul knows at this point, under this imprisonment, in this particular circumstance, he is aware this one will not end with release. This one will end with what tradition tells us. They took him outside of the city and they cut off his head. And so Paul writes this letter and he is concerned for Timothy to stand up and suffer. And all of the power of God is to be the means by which Timothy is bolstered in his confidence and in his willingness to share in this suffering. What we find then in the remainder of the paragraph from that second section of verse 12 all the way through verse 18 is a a further incentive for Timothy to stand firm. In fact, we're going to find four incentives tonight from this section that help Timothy be encouraged to continue to stand and to share in the suffering. From what we know about Timothy, this guy struggled with timidity. He struggled with being concerned that he did not have the credibility to bring to the table to stand against false teaching. He struggled when it came to a courageous power in ministry, and yet he was faithful, and he was Timothy's son in the faith, or Paul's son in the faith, rather. And so Paul now focuses his attention on further reasons, further commendation, further incentives for Timothy to share in the suffering. And we'll find four of them. Beginning in verse 12, where the period, if you have an English Standard Version, you'll find a period there at the very beginning of the verse. We'll pick up with, but I am not ashamed, as the beginning for our study this evening. Four incentives, four further incentives for Timothy to share in the suffering. Number one, a concrete theology 
was an incentive for Timothy to share in the suffering. And in this case, it is Paul's testimony to his own theology that was to stand as an encouragement, as a shot of steel into the backbone of young Timothy. Here Paul lays out for us why he has never crumbled under the pressure of suffering for the gospel. He says strongly, in contrast, but I am not ashamed, a bold declaration. I'm not ashamed of who I am, and I'm not ashamed of what I'm going through. Right? Verse 11 tells us that Paul's ministry life was the result of the power of God. It was the gracious work of God that called him, that set him apart, and it was the very reason why he was suffering as well. And now in verse 12, he tells us he's not ashamed of either of those categories. He's not ashamed of what God has called him to, nor is he ashamed of the suffering that has resulted. There's a concrete theology behind this because Paul tells us that it is based, his shamelessness is based on what he knows. It's what Paul knows that holds him in the face of imminent death for the sake of the gospel. What does he know to be true? What do we find in verse 12 that is the basis, is the ground for the theology of the Apostle Paul? For I know, he says in verse 12, whom I have believed. Paul knew who it was that he believed. This is a great starting point for us as we think about a concrete theology as the basis or an incentive or a a boost of energy when it comes to suffering for the gospel. It begins with a person. Paul does not begin by saying, I'm not ashamed because I know X, Y, and Z facts. I'm not ashamed because I know the results that God will bring in this particular circumstances. He begins with, he is confident, he is shameless, he is standing because he knows God himself. Paul not only knows the character and the person of God himself, he also knows that God is capable and trustworthy. Because of what Paul knows of God, he is convinced that God is able to guard his deposit. Now there is a whole lot of tricky and technical issues when we come to verse 12, in particular that last section of verse 12. But let's Start by saying and by realizing what is obvious here in verse 12. What is obvious is that Paul's theology is based on the person of God and it has resulted in his confidence in God to guard a deposit until that day. This is a lot of language that leaves us with questions. And in particular, the structure of this phrase leaves us with very distinct questions. Paul knows that his deposit is in good hands. If you have an ESV, you'll find a little number marking something there in verse 12. You can look down and find in the bottom or in the margin that it will say, or, here's another translation, what I have entrusted to him. Now, why is it difficult for us, and why do many of you have a different translation than I do of this particular verse? In fact, I memorized this verse from the King James Version, which is the other reading. Paul says he knows whom he's believed and he is convinced that that one is able to guard until that day my deposit. That's all Paul says. And so the translators are left 
to help us understand, is it the deposit that God has given to Paul, which Paul calls his own, or is it Paul's giving of a deposit to God? You understand the difference there? Either the subject of this deposit is Paul himself, he's the one depositing something to God, and he's, he's convinced that God is faithful to guard that deposit. Or he is convinced that God will complete what has been entrusted to him. What God has given to Paul. I believe that if we take this at its face value, we find the answer not to be so difficult. The reason that this is a challenge is because of the same terms used in verse 14. In verse 14, Paul says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells with us, Timothy, you guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So it's the same idea, same words, same word picture being used by the Apostle Paul. And so in an attempt to harmonize those two verses, to bring them into a relationship that makes better sense, if you will, verse 12 is translated, I'm convinced that God is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Because Timothy has been entrusted with a deposit in verse 14, Paul must have been entrusted with a deposit in verse 12. You follow along? You track with that? The issue is here, Uh, What we really run into that will help us in understanding what is best in our interpretation of this passage is the beginning of that phrase. Paul is confident that God is able to guard. It is God who is doing the guarding. And so in verse 14, who's doing the guarding of the deposit in verse 14? Good. Someone else? Who's doing the guarding in verse 14? I'm sorry? By the Holy Spirit, who is commanded to guard the good deposit? Timothy. Timothy is to guard the good deposit in verse 14. It is Timothy who is to take care to guard, and we're going to get there, to guard the message of the gospel. And he's to do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. When we come to verse 12, Who is guarding the deposit in verse 12? Paul is convinced that he, who's the he that is able to guard the deposit? God. Good. That was like one of your top three answers. You had God, Jesus, or Bible. And if you went with God, you got it right. Okay? God. God is guarding the deposit in verse 12. Now follow along and think through this with me. If God is guarding the deposit that Paul is claiming is his. And if in verse 14, Timothy is called upon to guard a deposit, the implication is that Timothy's deposit has been made by whom? Just reverse them. I'll just give you a clue. Just reverse them. Who deposited to Timothy? God deposited something to Timothy. And in verse 12... Someone depo- deposited something to God. So the guard is not the, is not the subject of the doling out of the deposit. He is the recipient of the deposit. We track with that. What I'm saying there in a whole lot of words is that I think that your New American Standard Translation is a better understanding of this. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. The guardian is not the possessor of the deposit. Let's take the word picture and let's think about it a little bit. Okay, Deposit is a banking term. It's one that we use pretty consistently, I hope. hope you're depositing at some point in your life. 
Okay? You deposit money, and if we were to boil down the bank into one person who stands over the bank, it's the banker. So you deposit money to a banker's care. And his role with your money, your deposit, is to guard it. He's not to tinker with it. He's not to lose it. He's not to let it be stolen. He is to guard your money so that it's there when you want to come back and receive that money. It's yours, and you deposit it to the care of a banker. In verse 12, the banker is depicted by God himself. Paul's confident, he's convinced that the banker who received his deposit will hold it until that day. And in verse 14, Timothy is called upon to be a good banker of the deposit that has been put into him, which is God's work. You track with that? Does that, that follow? You understand where we're coming from on this? I believe that the concrete theology of Paul in verse 12 is centered and focused and grounded in the character of God, and that flows into a solid state of confidence that God is able to guard what Paul has deposited to God. Now that brings us to another question. What is the deposit? What has Paul deposited to God? What has he turned over and entrusted to God? I believe if we follow in the context here, it's not difficult for us to understand exactly what Paul has entrusted or deposited to God for his care and guardianship. Some have said, well, it's the gospel. Some have said, well, it's his life. Some have said, well, it's his ministry. Some have said it's his apostolic work in in particular. I believe that if we follow through and we were to read through this context over and over again, we would be left with the obvious implication that Paul has given everything of himself over to God, and he is convinced. This is why he's not ashamed. The logic that Paul uses here is, I'm not ashamed to suffer. I'm not ashamed to be called out as an apostle, as a, as a preacher, as a teacher. Why? Because the one who deposited, or the one to whom I've deposited my life in Acts, the one who I've given myself to on the Damascus Road, is faithful and trustworthy to bring that deposit to the last day. He's capable. He's able. And he will, in fact, guard that deposit. Paul uses that same term that day later on in this letter. It speaks of the day of judgment, the day of reward that we spoke of this morning. It speaks to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, mentioning these, this grand reality of a judgment seat for the believer where the rewards will be received and where the deposit will have been guarded until that day. In other words, Paul says, here is my concrete theology. I know God, and because I know God, I'm convinced that God's going to bring me to the end. I've given everything to God, and I am confident that He is capable and trustworthy to guard everything I've given Him, which is my whole being, until that day. And at that day, everyone else will be silenced, and God will stand and will say, well done, good and faithful servant. In fact, that is the conclusion of this letter to Timothy. As Paul, in the final words, speaks of his confidence that he has, in fact, run his race, that God has been faithful, that God did, in fact, bring him to completion. So the power of God is the basis of our shameless suffering and sharing in suffering with those who are suffering for the gospel 
But not only the power of God, but also a concrete theology in verse 12 is an incentive. It is a basis for us to move forward shamelessly for the truth. That brings us to verse 13. Paul now turns his attention back to Timothy after a personal testimony. He moves back into commands and he says in verse 13, follow, follow or keep, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So if we were going to have four incentives this evening, the first one is a concrete theology testified by Paul. The second one is a consistent pattern of ministry, which is to be the standard for Timothy. A consistent pattern. Paul says, follow the well-worn path that I've given to you. The well-worn path that Paul mentions is not left to us to understand or to figure out on our own. It is sound words. This is an interesting thought for us as a brand new church because Paul here really demolishes. He really sets aside the common notion, the familiar present day thought that my highest goal and the church's highest goal is to be innovative, to be creative with the word of God and with the methods outlined in the word of God for the church, right? It's how can we be fresh? How can we be new? How can we be on the cutting edge of strategy in the church? Paul says, Timothy, if you're going to stand firm and share in the suffering, you must have a grounded and concrete theology, and you must not be innovative. You must set yourself to follow, doggedly follow, the well-worn path of the apostolic word. Paul gives himself the credit for being the transmitter of that message from God, the sound words that have been passed on, or the healthy the well-rounded, the, the full-of-life words that you've received, they have come directly from me, Paul says in verse 13. This is the apostolic transmission of the truth, and it is what you have in your New Testaments. This is the basis for Timothy's ministry, and it will be an incentive for Timothy to stand strong. He's not standing on his own ideas He's not standing on his own words. He's not standing on his own creative thoughts or strategies. He's standing on what has been given to him by the apostle from God himself. And that's a tremendous confidence boost for young Timothy. This is still necessary for us today if we are to follow the well-worn pattern that is proven and rewarded by God and we are to set ourselves first and foremost, to knowing what is the sound words, what are the sound words that have been given to us from the apostles. And that's what we have set ourselves to even in this study so that we might map out a course that follows the well-worn pattern of the sound words of the truth. The word of God is seen as a pathway to be followed and its transmission is through the apostles. Now, in the close of verse 13, he gives a particular spirit in which this is to be done. How is it that Timothy is to carry out this consistent following, this ongoing reality of a well-worn path down this road of sound words given by Paul? Well, we find the spirit in which he is to do this at the conclusion. He's to do this in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
It is the spirit of faith and love that centers and is is found in its fullness in Christ Jesus that is to mark Timothy. And you remember back in 1 Timothy, at the very beginning of that letter, he made several comments that were very similar to this, that Timothy was to keep his ministry clean in conscience by living out a faith and a love that was grounded in Christ Jesus. No different here. If Timothy is to share in the suffering and to be shameless in his stand for the gospel, then he must have a concrete theology. He must have a consistent pattern of his ministry life. And that consistent pattern must be carried out in faith and in love that focuses on Christ Jesus. Maybe there are people today who would go so far as to say, yes, we need to carry on a pattern of sound words. And maybe in our lives, even in our own ministry in particular within the local church we have been consistent and faithful to bring god's word to bear on our ministry life and yet all of us need to check ourselves at the door with this attitude this spirit of obedience faith and love that are in christ jesus he is the epitome of them he is the focus of them he is the object of our faith and our affection, and it translates into a ministry spirit that must pattern the life of the church. So, ministry incentives for Paul to give to Timothy to stand firm. He is to give himself to a concrete theology and understanding of who God is that will lead to a confidence in God, a consistent pattern that is marked by the words given from the apostle himself, And then in verse 14, we find a third incentive, and that is a cooperative defense of the good deposit of the the gospel. A cooperative defense of the good deposit of the gospel. Verse 14 says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy has been given two commands so far. One is to follow, and now he's given a command to guard. Timothy is to see himself in a number of different lights. Paul references being an athlete, being a soldier, being a farmer, being a builder. All pictures that he uses to give a, a, an understanding to Timothy of the ministry. And here he uses a guard. One who is stationed to provide safety. But it is not safety to people or individuals that Timothy is to be concerned with. He is to be guarding the good deposit that has been given to him. He is the banker who also is the security guard at night at the bank. He's been entrusted with something, and that good deposit is nothing short of the gospel itself and the ministry of proclamation of that gospel. Now, the first part of that verse gives to us the means by which he's to accomplish this guardianship, and this is crucial for us as well. If we are to guard the good deposit and if this ministry grace church is to be a guardian of the good deposit and if you individually are to be good guards of the gospel and if i and david are to be good guards as leaders and servant leaders of the gospel then it is through this means that it must be accomplished the beginning of verse 14 by the holy spirit who dwells within us the holy spirit is the means by which Timothy is called upon to guard the gospel. In John chapter 14, 
we find our Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he promises them the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting the words that our Lord uses to describe or to name the Holy Spirit. In verse 15 of John chapter 14, he says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, and you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me, these I have spoken to you while I was still with you. But the Helper, verse 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's a critical passage for our understanding of verse 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. For it is through that Holy Spirit who dwells within us from the point of conversion forward. The Spirit is there. You don't have to ask for Him to be there. You don't have to ask for Him to come and visit you. He is with you. He indwells you. He is there as a comforter and a helper until you are again in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And it is his ministry to teach you and to remind you of the truth of the word of God. And so Paul commends Timothy here. He gives him this incentive that the Holy Spirit would guide him in a guardianship, a cooperative guardianship of the gospel. Interesting that Paul gives a means and then also a command. He says to Timothy, it'll be by the Holy Spirit, but you are to guard. And so often this is the paradox of your New Testament. It calls upon you to live or to act or to think in a certain way, and yet it constantly reminds you that it is God himself who enables, who empowers, and who sustains you in that obedience. And so this evening... I trust it's your desire as it is mine if God so desires for us to shamelessly stand and suffer for the gospel by the power of God because of a concrete theology because of a consistent pattern of life that is focused on the apostolic word and then in this great incentive in a cooperative defense of the gospel dependent upon the Holy Spirit himself. What a tremendous encouragement this is to us. We have one final incentive for Timothy, and it's found in verses 15 through 18, and this will just be our conclusion this evening. In verses 15 through 18, Paul uses one final tool to help encourage Timothy to share in the suffering. And he he does it in in an interesting way because he points to negative illustrations to drive Timothy forward 
And then he focuses on one positive illustration of one who is in fact living out the very, the very commands that he is calling Timothy to. Verse 15 says, You're aware that all who are with me in Asia turned away from me. All who are with me in Asia turned away from me. Now, we haven't done this in a long time, but if we go back to our Bible maps, we think of Asia, and you might not have a very clear understanding of where we are when we talk about Asia. If you go to maybe the last map in your Bible, you'll find Paul's missionary journeys, maybe the next to last if you have maps. And on the left side of the map, you'll find a Ki. It's a little island region. You'll find Corinth there and Athens. Crete's down below. And right smack dab in the middle of your map, you'll find a large section right through the middle, which is called Asia. That region contains the city of Smyrna, Philadelphia, Sardis, Thyatira, Colossae, Laodicea, Miletus. These are all crucial cities. Some of them we know from Revelation as the messenger came and spoke to them. Some of them are because Paul wrote letters to them. We have Ephesus and Colossae right there in the middle of Asia. And we're left with this statement from the Apostle Paul. Those who were with him who were from this region, all of them, all of them were ashamed of him. All of them lived out the opposite of what he called Timothy to in verse 8. They were ashamed of the testimony about the Lord. They were ashamed of Paul, his servant. And they were not willing to share in the suffering that would come to them. Now, before we get too high and mighty and indignant at these people from Asia, whoever they might be, and we have two of them, Phygelus and Hermogenes, who are given to us, two representatives of this whole group. And I'm not sure exactly what these two fellows did. I assume they're fellows. I don't know what they did to earn getting included, but they must have led the departure from Paul. But before we get too proud and too indignant at these people, let's understand exactly what Paul is is meaning by they turned away from him. Let's think about this. Okay, Paul's in Rome. He's arrested. There are obviously people from various churches and different ministries who have come along into the team and are traveling with Paul. And what we find about Onesiphorus in the the remaining verses is that he was not ashamed and the contrast is used to point back to the reality here's what it meant to turn away from Paul it meant when Paul was in prison under Nero's reign and everyone knew that Paul was going to die for the gospel these people were not in line to bring bread and clothes and to cheer up the apostle Paul they weren't there standing in line waiting while the guards were there and they said hey we're here to see the apostle Paul We're here to see our old buddy Paul. He's the leader of our church. He writes us letters. He helps us understand doctrine. And we're here to encourage and to edify our brother in Christ. Right? We understand what that means? To say publicly, to go publicly to one who was in chains for the gospel was to declare your own guilt before the authorities. And all those who are from Asia, all of them, blanket statement by paul they turned away they turned away timothy this is what they did and even these two men stand out as representatives 
But there is one who doesn't. And he is an illustration for you. He's an incentive. He bolsters your confidence. He is the contrast in illustration. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. It's as if Onesiphorus was going from prison to prison to prison. Is Paul here? Paul of Tarsus, is he here? Is Paul here? Paul the apostle, the Christian, is he here? No. I'm going to the next prison. Shameless, willing to suffer, willing to associate with the apostle Paul. The word refreshed carries both a spiritual and physical idea. He no doubt brought food and nourishment to Paul, but he also refreshed Paul's soul and spirit with his attendance to him at the prison. Onesiphorus is one that we could learn a lot from as an example of what we find commanded of us and commanded of young Timothy and commanded of the church in verses 8 through 14. Onesiphorus is also described in verse 18. He goes on to pray this prayer. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So not only was this guy a Pauline encourager, not only was he faithful and true in the face of suffering with the gospel, but he was committed to his local assembly. He was a servant in every way. Even Timothy knew of his ministry there at the church at Ephesus. This is the final tool that Paul uses in his arguments here to call on Timothy not to be ashamed, but to share in the suffering and in the testimony of the gospel. He uses this contrastive illustration. Not like those of Asia, but like Onesiphorus. Timothy, stand up, take your place beside me, and be bold. A faithful, sharing friend of the apostolic ministry of the gospel. Now, before we go, it's important for us to make a little note here, and maybe you've interacted with this, maybe you come from this background, but the Roman Catholic Church uses these passages, these verses right here, 16, 17, and 18, to teach prayer for those who are dead. They assume that Onesiphorus is already dead, and that Paul here is praying for him to receive mercy after his death. And maybe you've never known that. Maybe that's news to you, but I would love for you to be aware of that if ever that were to come up in a discussion with a Roman Catholic friend or neighbor. They use the idea that Paul speaks of Onesiphorus as not being with his family. So you'll find that he prays that God would give blessing to his family, the household of Onesiphorus. The implication there is not that Onesiphorus is dead, but that he's still with Paul. So he's praying that God would bless his family back in Ephesus, that God would continue to show mercy Matthew 5 tells us, for those who are merciful. And then in verse 18, the Roman Catholic Church interprets this passage in the same way when it speaks of, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And again, Paul uses that same phrase that he'd used earlier about the guardianship of God with his life. Praying that God would grant mercy. And they're saying, the Roman Catholic Church interprets this as, an obvious sign that Onesiphorus is dead and that Paul is praying for God to show mercy in the judgment. 
What seems more likely from the basic reading is that Paul is praying that mercy would be granted to Onesiphorus on that day because Paul himself will not be able to show mercy to Onesiphorus himself. He'll not be able to repay what he is indebted to Onesiphorus for with his kindness and his gratitude and his mercy, and so he entrusts that to the Lord. It's as if Paul says, I know I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do in showering Onesiphorus with mercy. So God, I give that to you, knowing that you will deal with that appropriately on that day. This is the message. This is the message of an illustration that should bolster our confidence. One who will receive mercy, one who was bold in the face of suffering, and was not ashamed of the chains or the suffering of the Apostle Paul. That takes us all the way back to verse 8, and it reminds us that it is by the power of God that we are to stand firm for the truth. Not just the power of God, but a concrete theology that is grounded in the person of God and is confident in his character, a consistent pattern that is grounded in his word as given to us by his apostles, a cooperative defense in full dependence on the spirit of that gospel, standing firm with the spirit's power, and being careful in our association that we might find ourselves on Onesiphorus' team and not on the team of all those from Asia. This is Paul's encouragement. And no doubt this was personal to Timothy. Because he uses these terms, he implies that Timothy knows these individual people. And this would have been a powerful illustration to call Timothy to a radical life of shameless suffering for the truth. Now, All that brings us to the conclusion tonight to ask ourselves, first of all, am I willing to be unashamed for the gospel? Am I willing to stand shamelessly for the testimony of the Lord? That's a very practical question. Verse 8's command to Timothy and to us as the recipients of this truth is not a hard one to ask ourselves, but it is difficult when we look at the answer because our shame level, if you will, our shame meter, is directly equivalent to our boldness to speak the truth and to live the truth of the gospel to those around us. What a challenge this is for us. What a burden this is for us to examine our own hearts and our own lives to see if this be true of us. Paul attaches himself to this, or are we ashamed of those who are suffering for the gospel? If we are ashamed of either, then we would take stock and benefit from taking stock of the power of God in the grace of God, the theology, the pattern, the fellowship that Timothy was to enjoy as he stood firm in the truth. This is to be the pattern of our church. This is to be the pattern of your leadership. The pattern of those who give oversight to the ministry. They are to stand shamelessly for the gospel. This is to be an expectation of our ministry. That's why we started in the pastoral epistles. That's why we're studying these letters. So that we can have an expectation of what it is to have a successful ministry before the Lord. Not a strategic ministry before the world, but a successful one that has been faithful to what God has called us to. And that entails a shameless standing and sharing in the suffering that will result 
from the gospel by the power of God, along with a long, long line of faithful servants of God.